in the celebration with our families and our community in so many ways, I uh, wanted to touch this morning on the uh, the mind of Christmas. It's really a sermon on the spirit of Christmas, but the language that Paul uses in the text is the mind of Christmas. So, uh, so we're going to go in that direction and uh, just talk about the... You know, there's so much that goes on as we think about what is the spirit of, of Christmas, everything from the stampedes of Black Friday to, uh, to all that, that, that goes on as we shop and prepare. And sometimes it seems like it's a really good spirit, and, and sometimes it's not so sure. But either way, I think sometimes it takes a, a step back and to look deeper, to say, what is the spirit of Christmas? What is the mind of Christmas. And I think we have to look at Jesus to understand that. And so we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning to you and to your word. We long for you to speak, to give us eyes to see, hearts that are open, lives that are moldable. Father, we come to sit at your feet and learn of you. So come near in grace and power and work among us. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when the angels appear to the shepherds at the birth of Christ... And this is Greg preached his sermon, I guess, two weeks ago. And the, the angels appear to the shepherds in the field as they're watching their sheep. They give a very simple message, a very simple song. When the host appears with the, the uh, angel who made proclamation, and their song is simply, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is well ple- pleased. Glory to God in the highest. Right? Christmas is about bringing glory to God, and it's about bringing peace on earth. Peace is a marvelous thing. 
It takes many forms, and as we read, the Christmas story and the rest of the New Testament is unfolded. It's clear that the peace that the angel proclaims is first and foremost a peace with God. That God sends His only Son, that whosoever should believe in Him would not perish but have life. That He, that he comes as the Messiah to open the way for a sinful and rebellious world to be made right, to be put at peace with its God, to be reconciled. And peace with God, we know, or at least most of us would and could testify in some way, that when we have peace with God, it brings peace in other places. It brings, should bring peace in our own souls as we come and know Him and know peace with Him to come underneath His grace. That We are set free from grasping and set free from worry, set free from fear. But when we have peace with God, when peace comes to our own souls, there's an overflow in our relationships. That peace comes to a broader sphere of the earth. Peace with God makes for healthy and peaceful relationships. Jesus comes and He says in His Beatitudes and in many other places and ways, Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called the sons of God. Right? They'll be his children, in a sense, made in his image. Our children are the spitting image of us in so many ways. And, and peacemakers then are, are the spitting image of God. They will be called the sons of God, the children of God. Because it is what he has done in this big, glorious thing that we celebrate beginning with Christmas and going through Good Friday and then Easter and beyond. Peace, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth. We live in a world that is in desperate need of peace. Seems like more so now than it has been in in generations. As you watch the news and the conflict and the fear all around the Middle East and in every way, even in our own presidential race, I feel like there's this this lack of, of peace and consensus. Often in our own souls, we're struggling to find that peace, that rest in the midst of it all, a peace in our families, there's the struggles and the strife, the peace in our churches. But the coming of Jesus brings with it the promise of peace. And he brings with it the power of peace, something that we desperately need. Philippians chapter 2 describes the Christmas event, this passage that we're looking at. It's right in the middle, right? And 1 to 5 leads up to it, and then 9 and following kind of flows out of it. But right there in the middle of it all is Christmas. Right there in the middle of it all is what God did on that first Noel. But it's painted in here as a part of a bigger picture. We're given the whole thing. We're given, we're given from before he comes into his incarnation. You get a sense of the life that he lived in the form of a servant, his death on the cross, his glory at the right hand of the Father. But I would suggest even then in the first few verses, it's, it's outflow, it's power, and it's beauty in the life of God's people and in the church. That he applies that Christmas, it kind of comes right in the middle. Verses 6 through 8. Because Paul in this passage is pleading for the peace and the purity of the church. Now you know we just, we just lined up across the front of here 25 folks who, who joined the church and they took vows. I don't know if you pay attention to those vows. If you're a member of this church, you took those vows. 
And one of those vows in the middle of it is, do you promise to pursue, to strive after the peace and the purity of the church? Right? And so right in the middle is that, there's that peace, the, the promise that comes with the coming of the Messiah that we promise to strive after. And Paul is pleading for it here in the church in Philippi. I don't know what the issues fully were. We know at the end of the letter, he pleads with Euodia and Syntyche to agree together in the Lord. It sounds like it was disrupting the whole body, that there were some things going on. So Paul pleads with them for peace and purity, for unity and harmony. And the ground of his plea, which is what I want us to see this morning, the ground of his plea is Christmas. Right? It's verses 6 through 8. What Jesus did, and more particularly, the attitude with which he did it, the spirit in which he did it. So, looking at verse 1, he, he describes the power and the influence of what Jesus accomplished. Right? Because he speaks to us and how we've experienced the grace of what Jesus did, right? In verse 1, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from his love, any participation or fellowship with the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, you know, these beautiful things that, that flow from what Jesus did. And we need to understand that those ifs in there have the, have the power of more of a sense. Paul is not at doubt on whether these are the fruits of knowing Jesus, or the fruits of what Jesus has done, or that they are things that we as believers all experience in one way, shape, and form as we come to know Him and are in His community together. So these ifs have the force of a sense. It's like if somebody tells you, I'm hungry. And you say, well, if you're hungry, eat something. You don't have any doubt whether they're hungry. You know they're hungry, but it's a rhetorical device. If you're hungry, eat something. You know, you're, you're actually turning it into kind of a, a, a direction. Since this is true, then, then do something. And that's the force of what Paul is saying here. It's not if there's any encouragement in Christ. No, since there's encouragement in Christ, and he's going to plead with them to do something on the matter of it. If you're hungry, eat something, right? If there's encouragement in Christ, then make my joy complete and let that flow into, right? So it's, it's since... Since you enjoy the encouragement and consolation that is ours in Christ, let it affect and shape the way that we relate to each other. Right? If or since we enjoy the comfort of the love of God and what He has done for us in Christ, let it shape our love for each other. That we have won the same love, he goes on to say in the next verse. Since we enjoy fellowship, or the Greek there is the koinonia, since we enjoy the fellowship, the participation, the koinonia with the Spirit, let that be the source, the power, the flow of our own fellowship. Since we experience His affection and His sympathy and His grace, let it shape the gracious community that we share together. Paul says, complete my joy by manifesting these things, right? Verse 2, complete my joy as a shepherd, as, as one who has shared the gospel with you and has worked with you and has loved you and preached the gospel to you and tried to sort out your problems with you. Um, if, since we have all of these great benefits and experiences in Christ, make my joy as your shepherd complete. 
by expressing it in the life of the community. Letting it not just come to you, but to flow through you into your relationships. The peace and the unity of the church and of our families. And so Paul says, this mindset, this attitude flows from Christmas, right? Because he makes this plea in 2 through 4, which I'm going to not go into just yet. And then in verse 5, having said all that, he says in verse 5, have this mind among you. This is the mind that I've been describing to you. I want it to be among you, but then he presses forward. It is the mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he pushes forward. You know, there's, these are commas, and he presses ahead. These things I've been describing, and we'll go back and talk about them. He says, this is, have this mind. It's yours in Christ. Who? And then he gives you Christmas. Have this mind in you, the mind of Christmas, the mind Jesus had, the mindset that he had, the attitude that he had that, that produced and brought us Christmas. This is the spirit and the heart and the mind that should be in us all the time as his people. So I want to go and look at verses 5 to 8 because verses 2 to 4 are the application of verses 5 to 8. I hope we'll see that. Right? He kind of gives the, the ground and the basis after. He makes this plea for the peace and unity of the church. And then he gives the ground, which is the attitude, the mind of Jesus. He says, be and do these things. Exhibit, manifest these things. Because it's the mind of Jesus in his love and his incarnation for us. And so in verse 5, Paul goes on and he says, have this mind in you, which is yours. In Christ Jesus. Do you notice that? It struck me for the really, I don't want to say the first time, but maybe the first time. It reminded me. I had forgotten. As I read this, I always have this, have this mind among yourselves, which is the mind of Jesus. But he actually says, which is yours. Right? It's already yours. Right? Have this mind among yourself that belongs to you already. If you have Christ. If you are in Christ. If you are his people. And if you have experienced all those things in the first verse and so he he doesn't just tell us what to do you know to do what Jesus did he actually tells us we've been given a mind right a mind in Christ Jesus that is already now what does he mean but he's given us a mind in Christ Jesus and <clears throat> you need to hear their mindset you know our language is a little bit different we would say a mindset or an attitude you know or the or even a spirit um, a way of thinking Right, And so they have this in you, this way of thinking that was in Jesus, the spirit that Jesus exhibited when he did these things. And then he launches into what mindset is that, Paul? That we are to have among ourselves. And he gives us his great hymn to Christ in verses 6 to 11. In many translations, those verses 6 to 11 are actually set apart and set in like, a, like poetry or like a song. And many have argued that this section was a a hymn, whether Paul wrote it or it was just one that had risen in the church, it was used in the life of the church, but that it was an early hymn to the resurrected Christ. And Paul delivers it in the midst of this letter, perhaps as something that was already familiar to them, and summarizes the fullness of Christ's work from being in the form of God all the way to being exalted to his right hand, having every knee and every tongue confess. This beautiful hymn. 
But there's a movement in here. And Paul is, is pulling back the curtain from Christmas. And he gives us a look inside. Right? And it's interesting to me, there are a couple of the authors that give us, like Matthew and Luke, give us the, the narrative of Christmas. They give us the historical story. It was about Mary and Joseph. It was at the time of Augustus and Quirinius. And, you know, and there were shepherds and there were angels and a star. And it went like this because there was a... And they give us the history. They give us the history. And it's true history, right? They give us... But that's the sort of the human side as it unfolds in history. But there's a backside. There's, there's a backside to Christmas, the view that God has of what's going on. And John gives us that view, and Paul gives us that view. What's going on in, in these historical events? And so he pulls back the curtain, and he lets us see underneath. He describes Christmas theologically. He tells us what happened. And so we have this picture from verse 6 where you have this movement. Starting in verse 6, he says, "Who th- Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant being born. Christmas. Though in the form of God, he was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. And he lived the life that you and I failed to live. And he died the death that you and I can't afford to die. Paid the price we can't afford to pay. So we have this movement in verse 6. If you see it, though he's in the form of God... Verse 7, it says he takes the form of a servant. From the form of God to the form of a servant. In verse 8, he says he took a human form. All right, so this, this movement from God to man. We call that incarnation. The 25-cent theological term, and it's what we celebrate at Christmas. Though he was in the form of God, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Though he was in the form of God... He took on the form of a servant, the form of a man. And it says in verse 6 that not only does this, though he's in the form of God, he does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He doesn't cling to it. Though he's in the form of God and it's something he could hang on to, he didn't have to come. He had rights, he had prerogatives as God. Right? This is a full gracious thing. It says that though he was in the form of God, he didn't cling to his rights and his privileges as God, but he was willing to empty himself. In the NIV, it says he made himself nothing. And he took the form of a servant. He emptied himself. He veiled his glory in flesh. He submitted this God the Son, as we read in the catechism. God the Son submitted himself to the Father. And though he had all the rights and the privileges and the glory and the power and the prerogatives of God, he submitted himself and became a man to live the old life under the law. To those under the law, he became like one under the law. God the Son in the form of a servant says he came. He came. And more amazingly, he came to serve. He didn't come to claim, to pronounce, and to... He came, it says, and Jesus says it in his ministry. He tries to help him understand 
the Son of Man did not come to be served. He had the right to be served. Oh, he was the only one who had the right that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. But he didn't come to serve, to be served. He came, it says, to serve. To give his life. To save, to bless. He deserved it, but he emptied. He denied himself. He took the low road. He tells us that in John 13. It's there in your bulletin under the second point. John 13, it's a story on the night that Jesus is betrayed. They're in the upper room, and he and he gets up from the table and takes off his clothes and gets down on his hands and knees and he washes the feet of his disciples. And then when he gets back up and he's trying to get them to understand the import of what he has done and what he is doing, and many would say that picture of taking off his robe was emptying himself of his glory and and getting on his knees, taking the form of a servant, even to death on a cross, washing the feet of sinners, right? So here's this picture, and Jesus, as he gets back up and he tries to get them to understand what's going on here, he says this, you call me teacher and Lord. And he says, and you're right. I, I am the one who tells you how it is, right? The teacher, I am the Lord. I am the master, the one whom you obey. Right, so there is this sense, he's like, you're right. You're not getting it wrong there. I am. But if I then, your Lord, and we find he is the Lord of lords, and the teacher of teachers, truth incarnate, I am the truth. You know, if I then, your Lord, and the truth incarnate, have washed your feet, you also. No servant is greater than his master. I've given you an example that you should do as I have done. You should do this. You should empty yourself and take off your robes of self-righteousness and pride and self-centeredness. You, you should do this. You should, you should empty yourself, make yourself nothing and take the form of a servant and wash the feet of sinners in your life. Though he was in the form of God, Lord of Lords, He gave up his rights. He had rights. We have rights. He gave up his rights. He laid them aside. And he took the form of one who serves. And John opens his gospel with this same theological picture of the whole thing. Of what's going on at Christmas, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the form of God from the beginning. He was God. He had the nature of God, the essence of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And he was the creator of all things. Nothing was made that was not made through the word who is God. But he made himself nothing. He emptied himself and it says that he took on flesh. John chapter 1 verse 14. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Christ took on flesh and bone so that he could as Paul says it here, became obedient even to death, even to death on a cross. That Jesus took on flesh and bone so he could bleed and die and make a way of forgiveness and grace for a world that is lost and desperately needing to be made right with God. 
took on flesh and bone and became a man so that he could die. He there on the cross pays the penalty for our sin. He himself bore in his own body on the cross our sin so that when we put our faith and our trust in him, that forgiveness, peace with God is given. If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, seen Him as who He is in the form of God who has done for you what you could not do for yourself, who paid the penalty of a debt that you could not pay, that if you would put your faith and your trust in Christ, peace with God is the promise. The forgiveness of sins is His gift. A new life in Christ is our hope. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would encourage you at Christmas is a marvelous time to see and recognize and bow the knee and confess with the tongue that Jesus is Lord and to trust Him as your own. But Paul saturates this hymn. We need to see that as this this hymn of Christ. He saturates this hymn with the mind of Christ, which which is ours, that Paul says. Right? And this is where we find it. He says, this is the mind of Christ that is ours. And he saturates it in this psalm, this hymn, And he pleads with us to have the same mind, right? The same mind among ourselves, the mind of Christ, the spirit of Christmas. You know, the mind, the attitude that he had in his self-giving of that first Christmas gift, which was himself. And he pleads to have that spirit among ourselves, the attitude of humility, Right? We see it in verse 8, right in the middle of it, as he talks about what Christ has done and taking the form of a servant. And then it says, and being for, found in human form, he humbled himself. Right? And that's at the heart of this verse because it's at the heart of verses 2 to 4. Because in verse 3, right in the middle of it, he's going to say, in humility. Just like right in the middle of Jesus' passage, he, he humbled himself. And so the spirit, I think the spirit of Christmas, the heart of Christmas, the mind of Christmas, is this self-giving humility. Paul applies it, this emptying, self-denying posture of God. And he applies it to God's people. He applies it to us, right? And that's what he's doing in those four verses. The spirit of Christmas is humility. We're to have among ourselves because it's the path to peace in our churches, in our homes, in our own hearts, in our communities, and in the world. The path of peace is this humility, Because at the core of the world's brokenness, the heart of our relational brokenness, my friends, you get it in all of Scripture from the very first pages to the end, is our pride, our self-centeredness, our self-righteousness, where we went from being God-centered and so humble and gracious in the form of a servant. You know, we go from there to twisting away from His Lordship in our lives to to being self-promoting, self-aggrandizing, self-serving. I don't know, here's what God said, here's what I want to do, guess which one I'm going to do. And at the heart of our problems is us, self. The kingdom of self is the enemy of peace throughout the world, but starting in your own heart and working out. Self-centeredness, selfishness, self-interest, self-serving, my way, my opinion, my priorities. And the spirit of Christ, the spirit and mind of Christmas is the polar opposite. 
self-denying heart of a servant. And so he says in 1 and 2, we've experienced the encouragement in Christ since we have the comfort of his love, since we share in the fellowship and the koinonia of the Spirit of God that we share among ourselves since we've known his grace and his mercy. In verse 2, he calls the church to exhibit that spirit that we have encountered in the spirit of Christ in his self-giving in the lives of his church, his people. Peace and unity. So in verse 2, he goes on, he says, making my joy complete, having the same mind among yourselves. Now, some of us hear that and think, you know, I'll think, okay, we'll have the same mind. All right, if it's between my wife and mine, let's have mine. Right? Sure, we'll have one mind. I'll be of the same mind as long as you're of mine, right? Or you look down the pew or across the church, you know, have, have the same mind. You're like, fine, as long as it's mine. Whose mind is it? Is it yours or is it mine? Or is it the third guy over there? The passage is so clear. Whose mind is it? Have the same mind. Have this mind among yourselves. So you both have one mind, but it's not yours. Right? That was in Christ Jesus. The mind of humility and self-giving and self-denial. The mind that doesn't grasp after its rights and its privileges, the the one that doesn't have to have its own way, the one that is serving and giving and loving, right? So have the same mind, but yeah, not either of yours. And then he says to be in full accord. It's an interesting phrase. There in verse 2, the same mind, the same love that was in Christ, right? Being of full accord and of one mind. That full accord is actually two Greek words put together, Uh, the word together, and the word souls. It's a pretty strong word. So this full accord is actually uh, souls together, or joined souls, or, you know, uh, soulmates might be a way. You know, so be soulmates, uh, agreeing over not your way, but his way, right? Having that mind in us, soulmates, because we're united to Christ by his spirit, and how can this all be accomplished, this, this sameness, this same mind, same love, full accord? How do we do this? Because this is what the world desperately needs. Paul calls us to adopt Jesus' humility. The word there when it says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. The word there that's translated as humility is kind of boiled down for us in the English. But this idea of humility is a rich one. And the Freiburg lexicon, I may have put it in your bulletin, says it's a quality of voluntary submission, of unselfishness, of of humility, of self-effacement. That it's not about me, it's not about me, it's not about me. God does not leave us to figure out what it looks like. How do we do it? All right, specifically, Paul, have this mind, and then you give us this grand picture of Jesus, and see the dangerous, we'll leave it right out there in the theoretical. We'll leave it right out there in the, in the realm of grand ideas that I subscribe to. But Paul doesn't, right? He gives us four very specific things that he tells us, having this mind among yourselves and having the same mind is exactly these four. He gives four things. I'm sure it's more than that. But he gives us four. Right? Number one, 
In verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing out of pride. Do nothing out of self-serving spirit, right? Self-seeking. Do nothing out of self-interest. Right? Just imagine that for a minute. You never did anything in your relationships with others at church or at home out of self-seeking and self-interest. Not pushing to get my way or my opinion or my, you know, my will be done, right? But we relinquish that. Can you imagine? Just think about your families over Christmas, I always think about it because, you know, the hardest times to live these things out are in community, which is why doing church can be challenging, right? Because you try to do it in community. And in community is when iron rubs on iron, there are sparks and things happen. And so, so this is a difficult place for it. And so you think of, I always think of families, they're a fascinating thing. In fact, we weren't home for Thanksgiving, but we heard tell, of, you know, you know of, of, of how hard it is to be together sometimes as family. But just imagine your family gathering. Nobody pushed their own agenda. Nobody pushed their own opinion. Nobody had to have it their way. No, they were self-effacing. How can I serve you? No, you, you stay there. Let me, let me get up. Right? Let me do the work. Let me clean those. You go sit down for a minute. You've been working. What if, what if it wasn't about me? Can you imagine churches where there were no personal agendas? You didn't have to win. In our marriage Sunday school class, we were talking about um, not having to win and sometimes how I love to be right and I love to win. And so I argue to win and I usually posture to win. And so I usually do win just be by default because, you know, that kind of thing. But what happens when you always win is somebody else always loses. And somewhere in there, what does it look like to not win, me not win, so the relationship can win? Not her win, but us. <laughs> we win. When I lose sometimes, right? When I let go of having to be right or having to have my way or having, you know, my opinion or whatever. We win, right? And in churches that happens, right? When we relinquish my opinion or my way, when we're in a larger community that has very diverse opinions about the whole thing, you know, what is it? We win when individually we lose. Because there are a lot of ways I lose at church. I get outvoted. We don't do everything the way I want to do it. We don't push our rights. We deny ourselves. Imagine joyfully doing the will of somebody else. Right? And that's humility. That's verse 3 when he moves on. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, right, which is an attitude check. Are you among us as one who came to serve? Are you among your family at home over Christmas as one who came to serve? Do you have this mind among us that was also in Christ Jesus? F.B. Meyer said, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, one above the other, and the taller we grew, the easier it was to reach them as we matured. And he said, now I find that God's gifts are on shelves, but the lower we stoop, the more we get. He humbled himself, became obedient even to death, even to death on a cross. Take up your cross and deny yourself daily to gladly do the will of another and not have it be your way. And three, count others more significant than yourselves. Can you imagine, right? Now we're not, we're not doing anything from selfishness and we're, we're being humble and having this mind among ourselves that was in Christ and now 
Now I have to consider others more significant than myself. It's an interesting phrase. It's tough. I took three different translations. Um, It says to esteem others, count others more significant in the ESV. In the KJV, it says esteem others better than yourself. In the NIV, it says value others above yourself. In the NIS, it says consider them more important than yourself. In other words, in your posture of who's important in this relationship, it should be the other person. That's what love, that's one definition of love. The other person's more important. So my posture toward them is to meet their needs, to serve them, to be gracious to them, to give to them, right? It's not about me and what I can get. Love is patient and kind and it's, And it does for the other. God so loved that he gave his only son. Think about your marriage. Taking this posture and this attitude. Your spouse is the more important one. Start there. Right? Or in church. The guy down the pew is the more important one. His opinion is more important than mine. To choose rather to serve than to be served. And so four is to look out then. Verse four not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. Do what other people need. Do what other people want. Don't do what you want. Don't push and shove to get your needs, but you pursue what helps, what blesses another. Their interests. Can you just imagine? I mean, this, this, this you know, again, so he brings it right down to the, to, the, to the down and dirty in terms of attitudes and behaviors and what it would look like to deny ourselves considering others better and serving them. My friends, family can be one of the most difficult things, whether it's over Christmas or during the year, because it's community. Church can be difficult because we're in community. There's many opinions. There are people here, right? There are many, you know, and if everybody had their own kingdom, that's why churches disintegrate. We live together and we share so much. And the path to peace is to have this mind among yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. The spirit of Christmas, self-giving, self-denying, serving, gracious, humble love. This Jesus who was born on Christmas morning is now highly exalted. He has a name that is above every name. Before him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of God the Father. And it is this one who says, have this mind among yourselves that I showed to you. I have left you an example that you should do as I have done. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great love manifest in your son, Jesus. We thank you that you did not consider equality with God, that you did not consider your rights as God, your privileges and prerogatives, something to be held on to and demanded so that we are destroyed, but rather... You were willing. Oh God, thank you for laying aside, emptying yourself, making yourself nothing, taking the form of a man, becoming one of us, succeeding where we fail, dying to pay our debt. Teach us to understand what it is you have done. Open our hearts and our minds that we might share the spirit of Christmas the spirit of self-giving humility, of self-denial, of grace. Come near this Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.